Hey, I'm Tom Power. I'm the host of the podcast Q with Tom Power, where we talk to all kinds of artists, actors, writers, musicians, painters. We had Green Day on the other day talking about their huge album, American Idiot. Nicole Byer came on to talk about ADHD and comedy. And then there's Dan Levy. While we were talking about filmmaking, we talked about his insecurities. I sometimes feel like I have this desire to, like, perform, to be a version of myself that people might like. Listen to Q with Tom Power to hear your favorite artists as they truly are wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. This isn't just a waxy piece of paper with a picture of Queen Elizabeth on it. And this isn't just some numbers being entered on a banking website. What you're hearing is the entry pass to our society. So we live on the basis of money. You know, money is integral to everything that we do. It's just a way that we interact with each other socially. So if that thing is unstable, it's a source of often great trauma. Our entire lives are mediated, even determined by money. Money, this all-powerful force in our lives, is the embodiment of emotions and expectations. That's reassuring. Everything, everywhere, depends on the inscrutable, unpredictable workings of money. Money, you know, hinges on belief. Also really important is that finance is inherently unstable. Not because people are bad or greedy or whatever, but just because structurally, the way finance works is based on borrowing and lending, and history is a series of financial crises. Ideas producer Chris Wadskow has been trying to wrap his head around the mysteries and mischiefs of money. For his documentary, we're calling Mystified by Money. Um, yeah, so <laughs> I think it is a difficult thing for people to understand, uh, including experts. I would certainly put myself in that category as well. For something that's so all-pervasive in our lives, money really is a mysterious thing. There is this moment when the central bank is just creating money out of thin air. It's just plain weird. It's a wild fact, but it's definitely a fact. It's the way it works. So commercial banks also create more money on top of that. So we spend our lives working for and obsessing over something that can be created from nothing. When you get a loan from a bank, a bunch of money appears in your checking account. Now, that money basically didn't exist before. Money behaves like a puckish quantum particle. It changes form. It can be two different things at once and be in two different places at once. As money is credit and debt, and the, and the value of the credit is the value of the debt it can pay, right? And everything's credit and debt. If you're confused, you can take consolation in the fact that the money whisperers, people on the inside of all things money, central bankers, economists, financial advisors, they're also routinely depantsed and flummoxed by money. I think, more frankly, the conversation on the inside is uh, one of groping in the dark, of trying to figure out how to act in a context of deep uncertainty. 
Actually, I take back what I said. That's not consoling at all. I mean, what is money anyway? It's what you use to buy stuff. Right. <laughs> oh my goodness. That question dazzles us uh, and has been dazzling us for a while, as you know. It's this changing kind of shared fiction that people made up and that people don't really realize that we made up. Money is one of these complex fictions of modern life, which doesn't make it any less real. <laughs> yeah, it's an elusive thing to define. People point to it being a medium of exchange, a store of value, and a unit of account. My name is Eric Kleiner. I'm a professor in the Department of Political Science and the Wellesley School of International Affairs at the University of Waterloo. And I've written a number of books about different dimensions of monetary and financial politics. Money has often been a form of commodity, where you know we think of commodity money as money which has a similar value as the material that makes it up. So that would be precious metals. And then there have often been nominal monies, which are, are really just units of account. And those are extremely common in the past, before the 19th century, because monetary systems were often very chaotic. And so you needed a kind of abstract form of money, which had no tie to anything in the real circulation. And then the third form, and this is the form of money which we're most familiar with in the modern era, and that's token money, you know, which has no correspondence to the value of its material. So think of token coins or banknotes or bank money it, itself, like bank deposits. My opening premise was that money is becoming more and more decoupled from any objective measure of value. For the middle class, most of their wealth is real estate. For the super-rich, it's stocks. Piles of money that grow or shrink without doing anything other than having other people believe they're worth more or less. How else could Elon Musk lose billions of dollars in a few weeks? It's not as though he spent it all on a thousand yachts and private jets. Although I'm not really sure about that. What's up? I'm getting into crypto. With FTX. You in? We're providing gives 360-degree access to the crypto markets with the ability to trade everything from alts to DeFi. I believe I'm in, but still hate you. And cryptocurrency. It doesn't even have the heft of government say-so to give it value. Fortune favors the brave. Money just seems so much more abstract now, and less grounded in real events, real work, and real things you can touch than it used to be. My opening premise was wrong. I think money has always been fundamentally abstract, fundamentally social. My name's Jacob Goldstein, and I'm the author of the book Money, the True Story of a Made-Up Thing, and the host of the podcast, What's Your Problem? You know, it's tempting to, to think about the world today and to think about how abstract money is and how, you know, the money we have is just numbers on a screen in our bank account and think, oh, this is the new thing. And the old thing is when money was a thing you could touch. It feels like money is a fact in the world, like water or gravity or something like that. And it most definitely is not, right? Money is a thing that people made up. Uh, not only that people made up, but that people keep making up and people keep changing, right? And that people don't really realize that we made up. Yes, you can touch a dollar bill. And yes, gold, you know, to take a thing that people often associate with money, gold surely is real. But the moneyness of gold, the characteristic of gold that allows people to buy stuff with gold, that's the part that is socially constructed. So the moneyness of money is always an abstraction. 
the confusion has been to identify money with things, with material things. Well, I'm Jeffrey Ingham. I've been at Cambridge for oh, a long, long time. That's the way in which the control of money and the, the ideology of money, how we let to perceive money, is to take it away out of the political arena. It's something in nature. I started writing about money because I was in the economics faculty uh, and they were mean to me because I was a sociologist and they said, thought I didn't know anything about anything really. I, I was taken with the idea that, that, that money is a, a social institution and that to focus on the objective or the material form whereby credit is transported is, is to miss the complexity. Yes, I was compelled to write a piece in the, recently in the Journal of Post-Keynesian Economics uh, defending the nominalist theory of money. And I got this from Keynes. John Maynard Keynes, the renowned and widely influential British economist. And Keynes wrote to his future wife, Lydia Lopkova, the ballerina. And he said, the Babylonian's madness has overtaken me again. And what he was interested in was the fact that the Babylonians had a money of account, a shekel, but there's no currency. They had cuneiform records of debits and credits. You could pay in silver, but the silver had to be denominated like the gold standard in the shekel. And the shekel was a relationship between a weight of silver and barley. That was an abstraction. These two things occur in nature, gold and grain, but the ratio between them was fixed by an authority, by the state. And that's an abstraction. It's a product of human consciousness. So I think of money as a collective fiction something that uh, removes money from a narrow economic context and instead ties money to the collective imagination. Right? How do we relate to others? How do our expectations about the future work out? These are essential parts for how money works or fails to work. So my name is Stefan Eich. I'm a political theorist. Uh, I teach at Georgetown University in the government department. I just finished a book on the politics of money, and the title of the book is The Currency of Politics, The Political Theory of Money, from Aristotle to Keynes. There is a sense that we craft language and we use language all the time, but it also has an existence outside of us. Um, and I think money is similar in that sense, that we are its authors. Like language, it's also a medium that gains value or meaning through its circulation, right? Uh, creating your own language, like creating your own money, doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, instead, it's, it's always a social collective project. It's a social relation. And whether money works um, lies in whether it is able to fulfill that social task, whether it's able to create value or make meaning as it circulates. The political economist Jonathan Kirshner makes this analogy. Say you have airplane passengers who don't believe the plane can actually fly. It will still take off, fly, and land. Their lives depend on it, but their belief or lack thereof has no bearing on it. We all depend on money and we're all passengers on monetary systems, big and small. But our belief does matter. If people don't believe that money works, it won't work. So it's money if everyone believes it's money. But believing something is money isn't the same as understanding it even for the experts. 
you know, you asked last time about is there anyone who ever understood money? And the joke is more that like, is there anyone who hasn't like lost their mind? Because it's just so crazy. Like if you, you just come across the craziest stories. Well, Schumpeter, the, the great economist. Joseph Schumpeter, the renowned and widely influential Austrian economist. Was asked, I think I mentioned, walking across the, one of the quadrangles in Harvard. And, and so he said, how are you, Joe, how, how are you getting on the money book? And he said, oh, don't ask. I think I've got it. But he says, it's like waking up in the morning with a dream which you remember clearly for a, a second or two and then it, it vanishes. A graduate student, he's now professor at the London School of Economics, but he, I examined his PhD and he quoted St. Augustine, who said he understood time until he started thinking about it. And it's the same with money. Sidney Webb, the famous uh, British uh, socialist, when uh, Britain went off the gold standard in 1931, he's, he's said to have said, nobody told us we could do that. Like the sense that you, you, you don't even understand what your choices are. It's so complicated. Uh, but even, you know, experts have great difficulty, for example, predicting financial crises. And so every time we're in a bubble, People seem to think, oh, this time is different. You know, it's the reason why assets are going up so exponentially. Uh, and then we have, you know, once again, uh, a crash. And so I think it's because money is ultimately, uh, you know, a sociological, political, economic phenomenon, relies on psychology and emotions, and not to mention the complicated nature of financial markets in the contemporary era, which are, which are very difficult for people to understand. Confusion and debate over the nature of money may be as old as money itself. So Aristotle really formed the starting point for basically 2,000 years of Western thinking about money. Money has become by convention a sort of representative of demand. And this is why it has the name money, nomisma, because it exists not by nature, but by law, nomos. And it is in our power to change it and make it useless. Aristotle, Nicomachean Ethics. Aristotle, interestingly, forms the starting point for at least two wildly divergent schools of thought about money. Both those who think of money as a kind of commodity, as something closely tied to precious metal, something that emerges out of long-distance trade, and those who see money as a conventional institution of political life, that kind of collective fiction that is not uh, by nature but by convention, also trace this idea back to Aristotle. I tend to focus on the, the second one, the idea of money as a conventional institution of reciprocity, not least because that was actually the dominant idea for much of the history. It's fairly recently been displaced only by this emphasis on money as a kind of commodity. Money isn't an external object that we ever look at from the outside. But the monetary system consists of our actions, of our expectations about the future, of our beliefs, of our values, of our ways of falling short of those. The challenge of understanding money is one that we're constantly confronted with. So, money, this all-powerful force in our lives, is the embodiment of emotions and expectations. That's reassuring. It also takes shape through relationships, like the relationship between credit and debt. And money is both. If you have money in a bank account, that is actually money that the bank owes you. So you think of your checking account as just money in the bank. It's not actually 
a pile of bills. It is a debt that the bank owes to you. So money and debt are very, very, very closely related. In fact, money as we know it, paper money and fiat currency, actually started out as a kind of IOU. For more than a thousand years in Europe and in Asia, money was coins, and the value of the coins was based on the value of the metal that the coins were made of. Occasionally it was gold coins, often it was silver coins, but there was this one province in China, Sichuan, where they had a lot of iron coins. So these iron coins weren't worth very much. Uh, For example, uh, you needed like a pound and a half of iron coins to buy a pound of salt, right? Like kind of crappy money, right? Uh, Around 1000 AD, uh, this merchant in the capital of Sichuan uh, started letting people store their iron coins with him and giving them a receipt like an IOU. And then you can see what happens next. People started using the receipt itself to buy stuff, right? So rather than take my receipt for a thousand iron coins back to the merchant, get the coins, take the coins to go buy the thing I want, I would just give the receipt to the person selling the thing I want to say, like, you can get the coins if you want. That paper receipt turned into money, essentially. Other merchants started doing it. The government started doing it. And it was a beautiful thing. But now a piece of paper can carry the same value, the same purchasing power as, you know, a wagon load of coins. And this transformation, this adoption of paper money, which spread all around China, was part of and helped to fuel this real uh economic and technological flowering, kind of a proto-industrial revolution, you know, hundreds of years before the industrial revolution would would happen in Europe. Actually, Marco Polo visits China when Kublai Khan is is ruling China, and, and he's amazed by it. There's no paper money in Europe yet. There's a chapter in Marco Polo's travels called, wait for it, how the great Khan causes the bark of trees made into something like paper to pass for money all over his country. But eventually, Kublai Khan actually takes this step and says, you know what? You can't actually trade in this paper uh, for your metal coins. It's just paper, which is pretty wild, uh, but it basically works. Like, you know, he's an authoritarian ruler and he essentially, you know, makes people do it, but they do it and it functions. Then there's a revolution. The Mongols are pushed out of China. There's a new dynasty. And this new dynasty, is kind of, I guess you would say, reactionary. And so this new dynasty actually gets rid of paper money. Everybody just goes back to using metal. And, you know, the Chinese economy gets worse. People get poorer. A few hundred years later, paper money reemerges in Europe. And, you know, that time it sticks around. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. You can also download Ideas on your favorite podcast app and the CBC Listen app. I'm Nala Ayed. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. 
What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Chances are that almost every waking hour of your life, you're doing something to earn money, doing something that requires money, or thinking or stressing about money. It's unpredictable, unstable, uncontrollable, and at times impenetrable to understand, but our economic and political stability rests on it. If you find that thought unnerving, you're not alone. Here's part two of Chris Wadskow's documentary, Mystified by Money. So far, we've been hearing about some of the mysteries of money. Now, for some of the mischief. There's this moment in the United States in the first half of the 1800s that is just extraordinary. It just sounds so ridiculous. But what happened was, essentially, any bank that wanted to could print its own paper money. Jacob Goldstein is the author of What is Money? The True Story of a Made-Up Thing. And he tells of a time when money was a free-for-all. There were some rules you had to follow, but there were thousands of different kinds of paper money circulating in the U.S. in the 1840s. Thousands, thousands. And, you know, different colors. One of them had Santa Claus on the note. Sometimes the bank presidents would put their own faces on it. You could theoretically take your paper dollar with whatever Santa Claus on it to the bank And they would give you a dollar's worth of silver or gold. I mean, it sounds absurd. It sounds like a nightmare. But, you know, when modern scholars have looked back and done a kind of quantitative analysis, they found that actually it it basically worked. Yes, it may have worked. But considering how mercurial money can be and how important it is to everything, it seemed more sensible to fasten it to something solid and orderly. And what could be more solid than gold? A basic definition of the gold standard is you can exchange money for a fixed amount of gold year in, year out. That doesn't change. So in the U.S., it was $20.67 got you one ounce of gold. That's the unchangeable definition of money. But in fact, when you look at the gold standard, this wasn't the intrinsic value of gold. You know, the, the sort of formal international gold standard was only in place for, oh, 100 years or so. It was the promise that governments and central banks made that they would exchange gold for a certain amount of money. And what was that certain amount of money? An abstraction. So yeah, another abstraction to make money more real. Which worked until the Great Depression came along, the starkest example of how a financial crisis can change the nature of money and how it's managed. It was panic. 16 and a half million shares of stock sold in a single day. Sold hopelessly, desperately, at any point. It's a very severe crisis, and it happens at a time when humans were more integrated in the money economy than they had ever been historically. And so people felt it uh, in their everyday life in many, many different parts of the world. Brother, can you spare a dime? Once I built a tower... And so people point to that when they say, you know, why do we need to understand financial crises? Because they can just have this incredible effect, not just on the financial system, but on the broader political economy. 
as the world was falling into the depression, the gold standard turned out to be a problem because prices are falling, which sounds good. But in fact, along with prices, wages were falling, so that's bad. And prices were falling for farmers. Farmers have a lot of debt. They borrow money and then they sell what they grow. They sell hogs or corn or whatever. When you have deflation, when you have falling prices, their debt is not getting smaller but they have to sell more and more hogs or more and more corn to pay the same amount of debt, which they can't do, right? Lots of farmers can't pay back the debt. The bank in that town, in that county goes bust, right? And so we're in this downward spiral, falling prices, bankruptcies, bank failures, more falling prices. And the way you get out of that is you create more money to start pushing prices back up. But kind of the whole point of the gold standard is you can't just create more money, right? You're constrained somewhat by the amount of gold there is. This great nation will endure as it has endured, will revive and will prosper. So that's the setting when Franklin Roosevelt is elected president. He takes office in 1933. And even the the day he's inaugurated, there is this massive wave of bank failures that has been rolling across the country. I want to talk for a few minutes with the people of the United States about banking. To talk with the comparatively few who understand the mechanics of banking, but more particularly with the overwhelming majority of you who use banks for the making of deposits and the drawing of checks. And there have been a few economists who have been saying, look, the gold standard is the problem here. But this was a really radical view. And I think the day Roosevelt was inaugurated, this economist, George Warren, flew down to Washington on this little plane and actually gets in to see Roosevelt and is lobbying him to go off the gold standard. And one of the first things Roosevelt does as president, he closes all the banks in the country And within a couple of months, he decides to do this unthinkable thing. He becomes convinced that he needs to take the U.S. off the gold standard. Therefore, the United States must take firmly in its own hands the control of the gold value of our dollar. Uh, His own advisors, when he says he's going to do it, think he's making a horrible mistake. One of them says it's the end of Western civilization. But the advisors were wrong, and Roosevelt was right. You see it not just in the United States, but in country after country. When they stayed on the gold standard, things got worse. When they went off the gold standard, things started to get better. So the 1930s is a period of great experimentation with public control of central banks. The gold standard was essentially meant money had a similar value in many, many different parts of the world. And that just suddenly evaporates in a very rapid way. And the world is launched into a set of currency blocks, some of which are quite closed to others. So exit the gold standard and enter central banks, fiat currency, and the monetary world envisioned by John Maynard Keynes. So I think Keynes's real break with previous thinking comes in the 1920s when he formulates a point that seems so obvious to us that we might take it for granted, but that completely shocked his contemporaries. That was the idea that if you really cared about monetary stability, what you should do is not tie yourself to some external anchor, let's say gold, but instead set up an institution whose 
goal and task is to manage the stability. So that's in some way the idea of modern central banking. The central bank just does it with a computer. Somebody who works at the central bank types a few strokes on a keyboard and, you know, typically does something like buys some bonds from a bank. So the commercial bank gives the central bank the bonds and the central bank gives the commercial bank money that didn't exist a moment before. There is this moment when the central bank is just creating money out of thin air. Now, commercial banks also create more money on top of that. When you get a loan from a bank, a bunch of money appears in your checking account. Now, that money basically didn't exist before. It's a wild fact, but it's definitely a fact. It's the way it works. I don't know. Does that sound right? Yeah, so it seems kind of absurd that the central bank and commercial banks are both creating money out of thin air. They're just typing things on the computer. And yet it works, right? You know, you get a loan from the bank, the number on your checking account gets bigger. You can go buy actual stuff with that money. You can buy a house, you can buy a car, you can buy food, you can buy things that people have worked to create and that you can touch. Why does it work? It works because people are willing to give you stuff in exchange for those intangible numbers in your bank account. And they're willing to do it because they basically know that everybody's playing along. So central banks have the power to bring money into being. But that doesn't mean that they can control it after it springs forth from their computers and into the world. And the big bugger is, guys, is inflation and debt. We all know the debt will create inflation. The value of money, this will destabilize it. The debt must be kept in proportion. What is the proportion? It was exceeded significantly in 2008-9 and again recently with the pandemic. It's exceeded in wartime, for God's sake, massively. There can be no right quantity of money. There can be no one optimum. An optimum would depend on the circumstances. There is an optimum if you want a zero inflation, but that's, that, that's hopeless. So inflation is, is definitely a mystery. That's more clear now than ever. I mean, it was clear already, you know, in the teens, sort of on the other side of the coin, right? At that time, inflation was mysteriously low. Everybody kept expecting it to go up. And then, you know, in the past year, we've seen inflation went way up when lots of people expected it wouldn't. With the return of inflation, both governments and central banks have obviously been deeply interested in restoring the narrative that we know what to do. But I think it runs up against a whole host of uncertainties that all these policymakers are grappling with internally, but are hesitant to make public. So they try to fight inflation by raising interest rates, which inflicts financial hardship on everyone. But inflation itself inflicts financial hardship. I have the worry that we are stuck in a kind of kabuki theater moment of monetary policy, namely that central banks act with all their vigor to keep alive the late 1970s, early 1980s heroic narrative of independent central bankers struggling against and defeating inflation, when their actions actually have remarkably little impact on what happens. And when inflation will eventually go down, and that's already beginning to happen right now, it's because of supply chain pressures easing, because of things happening that are fundamentally beyond the control of central banks. The one thing that we know for sure they are contributing to right now is creating an artificial recession, pushing people into unemployment, hiking the costs of refinancing houses, 
and reducing the overall quality of life. I think, more frankly, the conversation on the inside is uh, one of groping in the dark, of trying to figure out how to act in a context of deep uncertainty. But one of the perversities of our setup of technocratic governance delegated to experts is that those experts cannot admit ignorance. Here's what we know so far. Money is what people say it is, and what people believe it is. And money is about relationships, but not just between people. It's also the relationship between people and government, whether that's a social democracy or a dictatorship. It's a matter of coercion and persuasion. And states or central authorities are, are crucial. In the economics textbooks 101, right up to not very long ago, they used the example of the prisoner of war camp in Germany in the Second World War, where cigarettes became the currency. And they said, oh, look, they emerged spontaneously in this group. Now, for God's sake, the officers set a tariff. They, they created a unit of account. They controlled the supply of tinned food and of cigarettes. It was a mini-state. But it, it appealed to the idea that somehow money emerges spontaneously because rational individuals want something to... Ex states are required. There are limits to economics. This is why, you know, I'm the professor of political economy. I'm not the professor of economics. Stepping out of the shadow of the idea of money as simply a neutral tool of economic exchange. If we leave that idea behind and actually accept the way in which the creation of money and the decision who gets to create money is a question that entails relationships of power. And the immediate follow-up question is, how should that power be organized? The former CEO of collapsed cryptocurrency exchange FTX was once among the world's richest people. There have been attempts to create forms of money outside the reach of government. Cryptocurrency, like Bitcoin or Ethereum. Notorious for hype, wild fluctuations, shady operators, and scandals. The disgraced FTX founder was arrested last night in the Bahamas at the request of the U.S. government. True believers argue it's a better form of money because it stands outside the political realm. But that might also be its fundamental flaw. Initially, when um, crypto in the form of Bitcoin entered the scene, it really formed part of a vision of money as somehow beyond politics removing money from the discretionary decisions of banks and the state and, you know, really rooting it again in a form of value beyond human control. And I think that's a deeply troubling vision, seems to me to precisely fail the test of democratic politics. How do you even begin to engage with those entities? And how do you, you know, try to influence them as citizens? There's no claim there of the citizens. Um, my name is Shweta S. Banerjee, and I am a, a Vanier doctoral scholar at the University of Toronto, uh, Department of History. And before that, I've worked at the World Bank on rural livelihood development and several other projects. In our currency system, the rupee is symbolic of the relationship between state and citizen. And so as a citizen, you have a right to engage on that monetary system. But if you look at private money produced in a sort of cryptic virtual way, who is this relationship about? Cryptocurrencies 
are an, an example or a manifestation of what Hayek argued. Friedrich von Hayek, Austrian philosopher and economist who believed that the market would create its money. People could should have the right to choose which is the best money to use. Well, my God, you know, that's anarchy. You know, money is not binary, right? Things can be money-ish. A striking thing to me about crypto is how little that has happened. You don't use that to buy stuff. I mean, it's, it's just so volatile. To function effectively, money should be perceived to be stable enough for long-term contracts to be entered into. And that's how capitalism or any economic system will, will, will function, where, where you can trust the future and you can trust strangers. We might be fools to do so, but, but yeah, that's what we, we call to delude ourselves. Germany today approved an international bailout aimed at saving Greece from bankruptcy. But the help comes with demands that the Greek government put its financial house in order by imposing harsh austerity measures. There is this basic part of being a sovereign nation that is controlling your own money. I think in the current era, what's particularly important is people expect the state to do active macroeconomic management. And monetary management is a key part of that. And you can't do it if you don't have your own currency. But richer countries with the biggest economies have a lot more sovereignty over their money than poorer countries. Not every country just gets to print its own money, no questions asked. Richer countries can tell the poorer countries how much money they can have, where it's going to come from, and how they're going to pay it back. A student once asked me, why is the dollar so strong when there's all these debts and all this promise? I said, they've got more stealth bombers than anyone else. You see, when the U.S. prints money or the U.S. borrows, it borrows in dollars. It, so the dollar is always strong, no matter you know, what the situation is in terms of inflation levels or unemployment levels or U.S. economy in general. But it's not the same for other countries. You know, you have to borrow in, you know, you have to make sure your foreign reserves are at a certain level. And those foreign reserves are usually mostly dollars or could be a combination of other currencies. But that's the sort of mainstay of the financial system. There is a hierarchy there of which currency is, is hard and which currency is strong. At Colombo's largest market, the pain of a country whose economy is in ruins is inescapable. Case in point, the Sri Lankan debt crisis that erupted in 2022. The country ran out of reserves of foreign currency. That meant it couldn't pay back its foreign debt and it couldn't buy fuel or other necessities. The heart of government, Sri Lanka's presidential secretariat, was surrounded by thousands of protesters who then stormed the building. The financial crisis led to political crisis. The president resigned in the wake of angry mass protests and fled the country. If you look at the recent debt crisis in Sri Lanka, I think that the idea of money as obligation has real uh, impact on people's abilities to live their lives. If that obligation is disrupted it translates into a huge crisis um, at, at the everyday level. So I think the international financial system, for instance, that we inherit today, and the triumph, or at least somewhat of a triumph of what we understand as universal money, rests on uh, a long history of imperialism and colonialism. And that is something that we cannot ignore if we want to understand it better. 
you know. So if, again, I keep going back to Sri Lanka. So if it wants to disengage with a bilateral creditor, it has to go back to the IMF to help restructure its debt. You know, there's a certain immediacy there because you need the fuel, you need the food, you need the medicines to get to the people there. So every time a debt gets restructured in the context of Sri Lanka or any other country in crisis, it gets restructured from the point of view of the creditor. But it does not get restructured from the point of view of the borrower. There's a justice movement, for instance, to restructure debt so that debt is actually, I wouldn't say forgiven, but forgotten maybe. Because forgiven, again, you know, is is a deeply problematic term. The stability and viability of national governments and the well-being of their citizens are tied to money, as well as central banks and international finance bodies. Geopolitical stability rests to a large degree on global financial stability, and vice versa. I think it's impossible to have a global financial system that ignores questions of monetary stability. Monetary uh, questions are fundamental to both the domestic stability of societies and even more so the way in which societies relate to one another. So we live in what you might call the ruins of Bretton Woods. Representatives of 28 countries, with Lord Halifax signing for the United Kingdom, meet in the conference room of Washington's State Department for the signing of the Bretton Woods Monetary Agreement. Bretton Woods was the system of rules, protocols, conventions, and institutions that governed the global financial system after the Second World War. Bretton Woods is an international pool of the goodwill of nations subscribing to the agreement. Ours is a mission of peace designed to establish the economic foundations of peace on the bedrock of genuine international cooperation. The World Bank and International Monetary Fund, or IMF, are remnants of it. But the Bretton Woods system itself was scrapped in the 1970s. Bretton Woods is dead, but we haven't quite left the world of Bretton Woods. Instead, we find ourselves in what one French central banker has once called a non-system, system that doesn't have an author, that was not designed, that doesn't have a coherent logic, but it's the creation of a kind of muddling through of the improvisation of many, many private financial actors and central banks trying to respond to those financial actors. There's no inherent logic that holds it together apart from the lack of an alternative. And so that fuels a certain kind of anxiety about, on the one hand, protecting the system on the part of central banks, developing more and more sophisticated tools of managing crises. And central banks have gotten extraordinarily good at um, anticipating and managing these crises. But what's being kept alive here is a kind of zombie, a kind of a non-system, one that we don't fully understand, that we certainly don't have control over, and that increasingly serves um, a small group of um, financial actors rather than uh, global citizens more broadly. Right. So we live on the basis of money. And money is a social glue that ties us all to each other, both within the country but internationally. And so when there's uh, instability in one place, it has you know ripple effects across the world. And so how does that manifest in daily life? Well, we're seeing it right now where people are experiencing inflation, for example. So in everyday life, you suddenly see money is operating in a way you wouldn't expect it to. And it's causing you disruption in your daily life. Things are more expensive than you thought they would be. 
the more dramatic would be one would be during a financial crisis moment and those crisis moments you know people lose their savings or they they don't know if their savings are secure even if they haven't lost it yet that's really a source of great instability in your daily life you know money is integral to everything that we do it's just a way that we interact with each other socially so if you think of these experiences of of hyperinflations like in Germany in the early 1920s it was a real social trauma like psychologically and everything they just didn't know how society was going to operate because money just ceased to function money you know hinges on belief also really important is that finance is inherently unstable right and not because people are bad or greedy or whatever but just because structurally you know the way finance works is based on borrowing and lending and history is a series of financial crises there is going to be another financial crisis Whether or not money works stems not only from how much trust and belief people have in it, but how much weight authorities put behind it. That's true on an international scale, too. Remember the bit about Greece and the Euro crisis? Thousands of demonstrators were marching through central Athens again Thursday. They were protesting against austerity measures and expected job cuts by the Greek government, which has been frantically working to stave off bankruptcy. Now the nations of the Eurozone face a stark choice repair the currency block at great cost, or dissolve the euro and take a trip into the frightening unknown. The crisis was basically ended this one day by Mario Draghi, the Italian economist, who at the time was the head of the European Central Bank. So the European Central Bank is the one institution that can create money out of thin air to address the kind of crisis that the euro was having. And Draghi was speaking on this panel, and he used this phrase, whatever it takes. And we will do whatever it takes within our mandate. And that phrase, whatever it takes, was the key message. He was saying, we are going to save the euro. We're going to keep countries in the euro. And people believed him, right? You know, as he's talking, as he's finishing talking, you see these borrowing costs, these government borrowing costs that are like the key measure of sort of stress, key measure of the crisis, they start falling, right? Which tells you that financial markets, investors, the people who decide whether and at what rate to lend money to governments, believe Mario Draghi when he says, we're going to do whatever it takes. And when that trust, credibility, and belief go out the window, money can go with it. It vanishes. It vanishes when the institutions and the relationships which sustain it crumble disintegrate and loss of confidence in the money leads to loss of confidence in the government and the state the more in- political instability there is the more monetary instability there will be and there's the feedback on each other it's fragile it's fragile within societies and between societies there isn't some kind of external order that we can simply submit to and that is a scary idea that is a deeply uncomfortable idea that ultimately it's on us to make it work So money only works because of persuasion, coercion, trust, and belief. It's abstract and unstable, shaped by emotion and relationships. It defies understanding and control. Doesn't that 
kind of suggest we're in a fairly precarious state when our quality of life, security, economies, governments, institutions, and geopolitical order are substantially determined by money and how well it's managed? So you go back to the debt crisis in 1982, and then in 1987, stock crash, and the Mexican crisis in 94, and then the East Asian crisis in the late 90s, and then the 2008, of course, the biggest of them all. University of Waterloo political scientist Eric Holliner. And in each case, it's required very high levels of cooperation to prevent the whole system from from melting down. You know, because I'm a political scientist, I'm interested in the politics of managing uh, that kind of cooperation. And it's been relatively fragile in each crisis. One of the most famous financial historians, Charles Kinderberger, described financial crises as a hardy perennial, and they always come back. And so we will have another financial crisis, and the system is so integrated, it's likely to spill over borders. And the question is, will it be managed effectively? And it's a deeply political question. You know, in the current era, it's a question of what would the U.S. Federal Reserve do? I think the Fed is out of control. I think what they're doing is wrong. Uh, I think the Fed During the Trump administration, there was a fear that um, the Federal Reserve would succumb, like other institutions had, to the kind of Trump politicization of the American administrative state. Interestingly, that didn't happen. There were feuds, there were struggles, but the Federal Reserve was able, during COVID, for example, to engage in the kind of international programs, such as swap lines, that many had feared a Trump administration would cut off. But given that it worked last time, is obviously no guarantee that the, the further erosion of um, democratic institutions, the further erosion of the administrative state uh, in the U.S., won't claim the Federal Reserve as one of its casualty in the future. And that would endanger its role in the global financial system, because global finance is, to a very large extent, dependent on the U.S. Federal Reserve maintaining the global financial system. The slippery slope we've been falling down, governments don't often give back control once they've had it. We're just sick and tired of seeing Canadians lose their rights and freedoms over the last two years. Money is volatile, yet we need it for stability. But with rising populism and distrust of governments and democratic institutions, even elections, let alone central banks, that doesn't seem to bode well for stability. I certainly shudder at the erosion of trust in public institutions. And yet, I don't think we should dismiss this. I think there's something interesting going on here because it speaks precisely to the fragile legitimacy of trying to design a monetary system that is explicitly removed from democratic decision-making. And I think people pick up on this. They realize that many of the decisions that are being made by public institutions like the central bank are necessarily in the interest of the broader public, but have first and foremost the financial sector in mind. The best illustration of this was still the, the bailout of banks during the financial crisis. People in Congress, when they kind of learned of what the Fed had done in 2008, which is lending money to foreign central banks, but also sometimes lending uh, directly to foreign financial institutions that were involved in the U.S. financial system, there was a lot of anger in Congress and a sense of, you know, you didn't bail out 
the person on Main Street, why were you bailing out all these foreigners? And in, in you understood, as in your capacity as Treasury Secretary, that in fact the American taxpayer was on the hook to backstop those loans if they went sour, correct? It constrains policymakers who might feel they need to make some very rapid decisions about the need to cooperate quickly in the event of financial crisis. So if you're if you were in the Fed, I think you're very aware now that if you do that again, you're going to be hauled before Congress. And so it, it just gives you less room to maneuver, I think, than you might have felt in 2008. I do think that the financial system is one of the vulnerabilities of humanity. It's, you know, up there with nuclear risks and climate change and other, you know, global scale challenges that we face. And even to understand where the vulnerabilities are is often very difficult. They don't get exposed until the crisis begins to get underway. But I am a political scientist. And so I can tell you that the political foundations of the globally integrated order, I would say are more fragile than they have been uh, in a long time. The groups that we've looked to to manage uh, periods of instability are yeah, under more serious political constraints than they've been uh, in recent years. You know, you need to act quickly sometimes in these financial crises. And so in that sense, it, it has some parallels to the hotline, the kind of nuclear hotline, where central banks have to get in touch with each other very quickly, make very quick decisions. Uh, and those decisions are more complicated, I think, in an era where they're facing all kinds of political constraints and there's an overlay of this kind of... Uh, Geopolitics. So what might what might seem rational from the standpoint of avoiding a complete meltdown is not rational from a geopolitical standpoint. Sometimes the geopolitics overwhelms that kind of consideration. We don't want to think that money is as fragile as it really is. Keynes got it. It lulls our disquietude, he says, to know that we can put money away for a rainy day. And we believe that tomorrow will be pretty much like today, and we, and we, and we hope so. We don't want to think too hard about it, otherwise get too scary. You've been listening to Mystified by Money, a documentary by Ideas producer Chris Watzkow. Technical production, Danielle Duval. Our web producer is Lisa Ayuso. Senior producer, Nikola Lukšić. Greg Kelly is the executive producer of Ideas, and I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.